certainly good to be back with you this evening. We appreciate it very much, the opportunity to, to uh, take a little bit of a time away in light of some special things in our family. And, but we're all, always delighted to be back with our church family, as, as even as we are tonight. And always so thankful for Brother Dennis and his exceptional capability of preaching and teaching the Word of God. He does so with such effectiveness, such passion, and certainly we're blessed to have the kind of lessons he's able to bring to us from time to time. I would say at this time as well that uh, next Sunday is uh, a gospel meeting is beginning at the Mount Della Church of Christ over in Van Buren County, so we will be at that. And so we'll not be with you next Sunday or Wednesday, but we know that things are more than in capable hands, and we'll certainly look forward to being back with you a bit later in the month of June. It is a bit of a delightful thing to see, as we noted, I think, Wednesday, how that many congregations are moving back more toward a sense of normality, and certainly we're thankful to be a part of that gospel meeting effort. I would ask, if you would, please keep that effort in your prayers that the things that are done and the kinds of presentations of lessons and otherwise will be the things most needful for that congregation. You may well remember last Sunday evening we turned our attention to an interesting biblical character. And in part one of that series we looked at Melchizedek. And in particular tonight we will not only continue but complete that series in a lesson entitled Melchizedek and the Person of Jesus, part two. It might well be that it wouldn't be a bad idea to review briefly, and so I will simply use this opening slide to do that. In that opening lesson last Sunday, we had developed five points, and if I may quickly review what those were, we highlighted them. That the Bible is such that the name Melchizedek occurs in Genesis 14, and it's almost as if it occurs there almost innocently. There is no hint at the time of what great importance that man was going to have. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit, in raising up the characteristic of a man like Melchizedek, would use that well over a thousand years later to not only make an affirmation in Psalm 110, but that later it would come to be an antitype of none other than Jesus Christ Himself. And that means Melchizedek alone is exceedingly important and one worthy of our attention. And so it was in lesson one of that lesson last Sunday night, we noticed the frequency. We highlighted that the single most oft-quoted Old Testament verse is Psalm 110, verse 4. And in so doing, we see the nature of Melchizedek rising to the top. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But not only the matter of frequency, that takes us directly to the book of Hebrews of the New Testament where we find that text quoted seven times. And as it's quoted, the Hebrew writer develops an incredible set of points to encourage faithfulness, to encourage devotion to Christ, and never ever should one leave Jesus. To go back to the law of Moses, which had an inferior priesthood to that of Melchizedek. In the third place, we appreciated this beautiful truth. When we first encounter Melchizedek in Genesis 14, we learn that he was king of Salem, and at the same time, he was priest of the Most High God. And so he simultaneously occupied these two very important and very high offices, and that was a rarity in the days of the Bible. But yet, Melchizedek was both. 
And, of course, Jesus is as well. He is both king and priest. And so Melchizedek served as a kind of figure pointing to the greatness of Jesus Christ. Lesson number four was Melchizedek and Abraham. Isn't it true that many religious groups will lift high the banner of Abraham? They will point to the characteristic of this great man of faith who the Bible calls the friend of God, James 2 verse 23. And yet, the Hebrew writer himself says Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And therefore, we see one more time the significance of this man called Melchizedek. Fifthly and finally, we notice the appreciation of the Levitical priesthood over against the matter of Melchizedek as well. And we saw that because the Hebrew writer makes this point. As you trace the descendancy of Abraham, Abraham's son, of course, was Isaac, and Isaac's son was Jacob, and Jacob had a son named Levi. And the the Levitical priesthood came out of Levi, and therefore the Hebrew writer points out, because the Levitical priesthood came through Abraham, and Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, the priesthood of Melchizedek must be greater than the priesthood of the, Levit- of the Levitical order. Therefore, those Hebrews that would have been interested to go back to the law of Moses, they were going to go back to an inferior priesthood at best. As we said then, I strongly suspect they were stopped in their tracks. And under a temptation to leave Jesus and go back to the old Levitical order, they would have heard lessons like these and would have said, why would we want to do that? Tonight we have some unfinished business. That review was the heart of last Sunday night's lesson, but we need to turn tonight to finish this up. As we do that, could I point out the following? If you would wish to be turning with me to Hebrews chapter 7... We will be encamping for quite some time, in fact, in the opening verses of that chapter, the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. I'd like to read the first four verses of that chapter. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now, the reading that we just noted, the opening four verses of Hebrews chapter 7, has listed a number of facts relative to Melchizedek. May I point out, at least initially based on verse 2, the opening observations on that slide. The Hebrew writer quickly says, speaking of Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Not only that, king of Salem. And finally, the interpretation, King of Peace. Now on the slide I've asked you to notice, you and I are of the understanding that righteousness by its very character is greatly significant. 
because it is the kind of behavior and the kind of conduct that, in fact, is pleasing to God and demanded by Him. And therefore, the source of righteousness is of great interest to be sure. And yet you notice here, Melchizedek. If you actually go back and look at the Hebrew rendering of that name, it means king of righteousness. That's what his name means. That's what it meant. Thus, to refer to the man as Melchizedek is to refer to him as king of righteousness. He was a man noted for righteousness. As I've asked you to observe on the slide, doesn't our mind race again to the appreciation of Jesus Christ? Remember, Melchizedek was a type of Christ. And now notice that Jesus is the source of our righteousness. He is the one through whom we can be righteous before God. I've asked you to notice a few passages. Philippians 1.11 says, He is the source of our righteousness. 1 John 2 verse 1 calls Him Jesus Christ the righteous. Isn't it fantastic then to hear passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Did you notice? We can be righteous in Him. Now, that's not Melchizedek, but that's Christ. And so, just as Melchizedek's name meant king of righteousness, Jesus is the king of righteousness, the all-time ultimate king of righteousness. But the verse goes on to say this, that place over which Melchizedek was king was called Salem. It would appear that that was the old name for Jerusalem. Now, we remember that Jebus was another Old Testament name given to that place, but apparently in the ancient order, it at least strongly seems that. Jerusalem was at least in an earlier time known as Salem. If that be true, then we've encountered a man who not only was king of Salem, he was priest of the Most High God. King of Salem, that word Salem just means peace. And that's why the Hebrew writer gave us the rendering. To say king of Salem is to say king of peace. At that point, you might notice Jesus, is he not the source of our peace? Jesus said, my peace I leave with you, John 14, 26. We read so sweetly in Philippians 4, 7 about the fact that we enjoy peace with God which passes all understanding through Jesus Christ. Maybe it is in saying those things that this man then who lived so long ago, Melchizedek, while he lived and walked upon earth, he occupied a role that would make one think about the nature of Christ. Now, I'm not certainly saying that Melchizedek was as great as Christ, because he is, he wasn't. But he occupied a role that God was to use to highlight the beauty, the majesty, the sweetness, and the power of that which Christ was to be. On that slide then, we've read the first four verses, as you then notice, but now it brings us to verse number 3. Having noted somewhat of Melchizedek's name, May I again point your attention to verse 3, because this at first sight seems puzzling. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, 
but made like unto the Son of God. Notice there, Melchizedek is said to be made like unto the Son of God. Abideth a priest forever. Now, upon a first reading of that passage, it probably would almost seem as if, well, this is unbelievable. This is a fantasy. How could somebody have neither a father nor a mother? How could they have neither a birth nor end of life? I mean, that seems like a fantasy, a myth. It seems like a made-up kind of a person. Remember that the old Greek gods that are often referred to in some of the Roman ones, well, they often had these mythological characteristics, and sometimes they were portrayed in ways that were obviously absurd, preposterous, and impossible. Is that like this Melchizedek? How could a person be born and have neither a father nor a mother? How could a person have neither a beginning to their life nor an end to it? Didn't the Bible in an earlier place in Psalm 90 verses 10 through 12 say, Three, three score years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be four score years, as if the typical length of human life was to be about that. And didn't the Hebrew writer say in chapter 9, verse 27, It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. So how could this Melchizedek have no end to his life? Is he in some way eternal like Jesus? Perhaps it's at this point. You can perhaps imagine that there have been some who upon reading verse 3 of Hebrews 7 have asserted this is merely a mythological presentation for comparison purposes only. And they're quick to say there never was a literal Melchizedek because nobody could meet these characteristics. May I say to you they're wrong. There was a man who lived on this earth. His name was Melchizedek. He was priest and king at the same time. He ruled over Salem. And he was a man who the Holy Scriptures would use as a one typical of Jesus Christ. Remember that which God had said? Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you think it reasonable that God would have compared the priesthood of His precious and perfect Son to a mythological character that never lived? Absolutely not. At this point, though, you might ask, how then could this be? Let's go to the next slide and see if we can make some sense or at least some appreciations of the way in which the Holy Spirit chose to develop it. Let's take these statements a few at a time. First of all, in Hebrews 7 verse 3, the first two observations made were these, without father, without mother. And so this inspired writer points out that this Melchizedek had neither father nor mother. Let's be quick to offer a consideration relative to this point. And let's do so in one way by way of contrast. It is extraordinarily valuable to the Jewish faith that their Levitical priesthood was traceable. The chronology and the genealogy was to be set. In fact, didn't the Old Testament make a number of listings of these? I've pointed you to Exodus 28, beginning in verse 1, where God decreed that all of the high priests were to follow through the descendancy of Aaron. That's what God said. 
So Abram's son, and then his son, and his son, and so on down the line. But in fact, to highlight that even more notably, you might want to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 6. In that chapter, you observe a lengthy listing of tracing the sons of Aaron and the characteristics that they occupied as the priesthood under the days of the children of Israel. Note again, it was a traceable genealogy. Have you ever considered and noted that often in the Word of God, these particular references such as genealogies are given? In Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11, two lengthy ones are given that trace Adam all the way to Noah and then all the way to Abraham. And isn't it true in the New Testament? In Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, we have Jesus traced back all the way in Luke's account to Adam, in Matthew's account, all the way past David, back to Abraham. To the Jews, genealogies were vital. They offered a stance of significance and they put a stamp of consideration upon the fact that we're able to trace our lineage back to those storied characters of the Old Testament. And when we consider the priesthood, God had said something like that was to also be true. But suddenly with regard to Melchizedek, no father, no mother. Now that doesn't mean that he literally was born supernaturally. It doesn't mean that by some supernatural characteristic, God brought him upon earth and gave him life without him being physically born. What that does mean is this. Whereas the Levitical priesthood and many other matters of the Bible were such that genealogical tracing was possible, that was not possible for Melchizedek. When you and I begin reading the book of Genesis, we simply read and we come to Melchizedek's name in chapter 14. No record of his father is given. No record of his mother is given. We have no record, no idea of the genealogical descendancy of him. We have no information about his ancestry. At this point, you could well ask, which son of Noah did he descend through? We have no idea. Noah had three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Which one ultimately brought forth the one we would recognize as Melchizedek? We have no idea. The Bible doesn't say. When the Holy Spirit thus affirms that Melchizedek was without father or mother, it means as far as the record is presented, as far as the chronology and the genealogy are shown to us, we do not know. He simply appears, as the old saying goes, out of thin air upon the biblical record. That being said, one more thing you and I can notice is this. Think about the priesthood of Jesus. Jesus is a priest, the high priest of God. What about the one from whom He inherited that priesthood? Remember, the Levitical order, they inherited it from Aaron. Aaron's son, Eleazar, and then his son, and then his son, and so forth. Who did Jesus inherit His priesthood from? Nobody. He didn't inherit it from anybody. Due to the perfection of His nature and the ultimate opportunity that was His, he is said to be a priest after Melchizedek. That being said, isn't it sweet to see that at least there is a similarity in that regard one more time. But what about the next two elements in the list? 
it is said that he was without descent. Now this one too is extremely intriguing. After all, isn't it true that with regard to the priesthood of the Bible, we understand that that priesthood lasted for a particular period of time. Think about again the Levitical order. God decreed Aaron as the initial high priest of that order, and it was to continue, but yet Paul would say in Colossians 2, that law was nailed to the cross, and with it, its priesthood ended. So it lasted a definitive amount of time, which would be somewhat over 1,500 years. But yet, when it came to Melchizedek's priesthood in Genesis 14, we read about him there. We do not read of any successor. We do not read of any replacement, any substitute, anybody that He ordained to take His place when He died. We have no idea. What happened to the priesthood over which He reigned? The Bible doesn't say. When you and I come to this particular point, the Hebrew writer says, without descent. Some translations read that without genealogy. I invited you a moment ago to notice 1 Chronicles 6 which traces the particular priesthood through the line of Aaron, through generations. And yet, when one asks similar questions about Melchizedek, there is nothing to be said. We know nothing about his successor. We know nothing about the number of generations that it may have lasted through. We know nothing about how long it lasted. We know nothing. That's what the Hebrew writer meant when he said, without descent. At this point, you and I might could even wonder, given the nature of what the priesthood was, we know that a priest officiates on the part of others. So there were other individuals that came to Melchizedek and invited him to offer or sacrifice on their behalf. How long did he do that? We don't know. Through what period of time did that take place? We do not know. Did he appoint a successor? We do not know. And that's the Hebrew writer's point. When it says without genealogy, it simply means from the point of view of the Word of God, that information has not been given to us. As you see on the slide, make a comparison to Jesus. Turn your thought for just a moment to the priesthood of Jesus. We know He became high priest. As the book of Acts so quickly tells us, now the question is, how long will His reign last? What about His priesthood? Will He give way to a successor? We know the answer is no. He will continue to occupy this role as the perfect high priest of God until time is no more. Until, in fact, this earth is burned up in the words of 2 Peter 3 verse 10. And we understand then that His priesthood too is such that He will have no successor he will have no person who will take his place after he gives that priesthood up, for he won't give it up. Do you again see the comparisons in some ways between Melchizedek on the one hand and Jesus Christ on the other? The Hebrew writer would, would go on to say this, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. That brings us to this. When you think about the beginning of days, you think about a person's birth. You think about that moment when they entered the fleshly characteristic of this world and their mother brought them forth. 
it's true that with regard to Melchizedek, the Hebrew writer has said in Hebrews 7 verse 3, having neither beginning of days. Now some would read that and again assert perhaps a preposterous nature. So you mean this person's eternal? He, there was no time at which he had a beginning? Again, that's not what it means. Think again about the significance of the characteristics attached to the priesthood as it occurred in the Old Testament. So often, when a given person would reach a given stage in life, like was the case of Aaron. Aaron had served as the high priest of God, but in Numbers chapter 20, he took his son upon the mountain and he coronated him as the next high priest. And then Aaron soon thereafter died. And so we had a moment when the high priesthood of Eleazar began. It was when his father bequeathed that role to him. And yet when it comes to Melchizedek, you could ask the question, when did he begin serving as a, high, as a priest in Genesis 14? We don't know when he began. Had he been a priest for 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, 500 years? We do not know. When the Bible says, beginning, neither beginning of days, what it's telling us there is that his priesthood was such that it's not as if it was traceable through a previous genealogy, a succession, if you will. It goes on to notice, too, nor end of life. That doesn't mean Melchizedek's still alive somewhere on earth today. It doesn't mean that somewhere you can find this aged man who now would be thousands of years old walking upon the planet. What it means is, again, we understand those priesthoods of the Old Testament era were such that they proceeded through a given amount of time, lasting until the nature of that given law gave way to another, until a supersession took place. With regard to Melchizedek, I've asked you to notice on the slide, no record of his birth is given to us. No record of his death is given to us either. Now, we know it's appointed unto men once to die. We appreciate the fact he did meet death at some point, but the Bible is completely silent with respect to that event. On the slide, I've asked you to notice, one more time, the comparison with Jesus is so intriguing. Now, you and I appreciate Jesus himself was eternal. He was living, of course, in heaven before he came to this earth. And we realize that he began his priesthood at a particular time. But of course, it will last until the end of time. Neither end of days, to borrow the wording of Hebrews 7 verse 3. Isn't that comparison a bit interesting? Jesus today continues as our high priest. Later in this same chapter, this point is made clear in verse 24. But this man, where that refers to Christ... Because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Notice again the wording. Jesus doesn't change, and he continues ever in this unchangeable priesthood. Aren't you thankful today that we need not worry about nor be concerned about somehow the switching of a priesthood? No doubt sometimes that would have troubled the Hebrews when a given high priest got to a sufficiently aged priest value, and it was time for that man's son to become the next high priest? Would there be changes that would take place? 
would there be significant differences? No doubt, sometimes they would have been concerned. We never have to be so concerned. Jesus' priesthood never changes, and it shall last until the end of time. Point number four, taking us back to that same matter is this one, and don't you find the wording very intriguing? We listened a moment ago as the Hebrew writer said in verse number four, but made like unto the Son of God. Please notice, he's not saying Melchizedek was the Son of God. He wasn't. But there were similarities between the role that Melchizedek occupied and the role that the Son of God would occupy. Jesus the Christ. The fascination then attached to Melchizedek is what led me to notice on this slide a few points of consideration. The first of which is this. We find, quite frankly, that there, are, there were many individuals in the Old Testament who in one way or another would occupy a role typical of Jesus. Now we know that because the New Testament teaches us this. For instance, in Romans 5, Adam, in a way, served as a type of Christ. Because as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Romans 5, verses 12 and 13. And so you can see at least in one way, there was something to be said about Adam that would make one think about what the perfectness of Jesus would one day be. But not only Adam. What about Abraham? Isn't it true that one more time, as great an Old Testament figure as he was, we remember in Galatians chapter 3, Paul develops at length the point that all of those who are Christians today are the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.29. So, you and I today, though we may not literally, physically be the seed of Abraham, spiritually we are, and that connection is beautiful and powerful. One could mention Isaac. One more time, Isaac, in the Old Testament, was one who was the son of Abraham, that son of promise, that son who came into the world in a rather unusual way in that Abraham and Sarah were, again, of advanced age. And you might remember that Abraham was told to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. And as we come to the New Testament, we find that in Isaac, some interesting things even about Jesus can be noted as is developed in Hebrews 11. The list could be much longer. I'll just, for the brevity of time, mention David. Jesus is called the son of David in Matthew 1, verse 1. And so we see a connection because as David was the great physical king of Israel, of course Jesus is the ultimate king of spiritual Israel. And that connection leads me then to say this. Melchizedek occupied a role typical of Jesus Christ. In fact, so strong was that role that may I point again your attention to Psalm 110. A thousand years after Melchizedek lived on this planet. So he had no doubt long since been dead. And yet the Holy Spirit prompted the writer of Psalms to say, The Lord hath sworn that thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Did you notice we often lay emphasis on the latter part of that verse? 
priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But notice what preceded it. God swore this. The God of heaven made an oath relative to this point. And thus, you and I know that God always keeps His oaths. He keeps His promises. Whatever He affirms shall be the case. And He promised, He swore, if you please, that there would be a priest forever after that order of Melchizedek. You and I know that came to pass in the days of Jesus. It is in the person of Jesus. But God swore to it. And that by its very nature leads us to observe the next point on that slide. The priesthood of Jesus is after that of Melchizedek and not after Aaron, not after the the Levitical order in any of those that would come through it. To a Jew, that probably was nearly unthinkable. For they thought of themselves as the greatest of the Old Testament matter. We're the ones. Do you remember with me how that they told John the Baptist how great they were? And John had to reply to them, God could have these rocks raised up children to Abraham. They thought, you see, that they were irreplaceable. They thought they were the zenith and the pinnacle of what God wanted for His order of fleshly character upon earth. And yet, the priesthood that was the greatest of all was not even through them. It was was more after the order of Melchizedek and not after that of Aaron. I've asked you to notice verse number 14 on this, or in chapter 7. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Can you almost sense the countenance of the Jews falling upon hearing that statement? Again, they thought their priesthood was the greatest of all, and yet the Hebrew writer said, Jesus sprang out of Judah. His lineage is traced through Judah, not Levi. That means he could never have been a priest after the Levitical order. Never upon this earth could Jesus have occupied that role. He wasn't born of the right tribe in their mind. But he sprang out of Judah, and his priesthood thus could be after the order of Melchizedek. Notice one last thing on that slide. Verse 21 of this same chapter. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear, and will not repent, thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And so the Hebrew writer emphasizes the fact God swore to that truth. Again, that was so different than what the Jews, the Hebrews, would have anticipated. As we close that slide and look at point number five, what about the continuing character then of that priesthood of Melchizedek? And what a remarkable comparison that points us to as we reflect upon the priesthood of Jesus. The Bible, as we noted earlier tonight, provides no information about what happened in the years following Melchizedek's place as priest. Who was his successor? Did he have a successor at all? We do not know. As we noted earlier, without end of life. But that idea brings us to note this one. Just as surely as Melchizedek died... That priesthood, whatever character it had, did reach somewhat of an end, a change. 
But oh, how marvelous it is to consider Jesus. He assumed the role as priest, as we learned earlier tonight in the book of Acts. And that priesthood continues unchanged, unmodified, and unaltered. And it shall continue until the end of time. He is our mediator. And the Hebrew writer devotes three chapters to developing the greatness of the Lord's priesthood forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 24 of this same chapter, as we noted earlier tonight, again says, But this man, speaking of Jesus, because he continueth ever, you and I today have the same high priest that Paul had when he was a faithful Christian. We have the same high priest that those Christians enjoyed a thousand years ago, those that lived 500 years ago. And if the world shall stand, those that will live a hundred thousand years from now will have the same high priest we do. Jesus Christ the righteous, the advocate, our perfect and only high priest. Would you look with me at Hebrews 8 verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A reference to Jesus. Currently reigning, sitting on the right hand of God, not only occupying role as king over spiritual Israel, but as high priest over, of course, those that would offer unto God this very day. One of the great truths about the Lord's priesthood, which is developed in verse 27 of Hebrews chapter 7, is this. And I'm sure we've often considered it in passing, but maybe as we close this lesson tonight, we can simply assert it like this. We all know that those high priests of the Old Testament, although they had acquired that position by virtue of their assuming it when their father died, those were just men. So they were guilty of sin. On occasion, they made mistakes. On occasion, they made poor judgments. On occasion, they did what they ought not to have done or left undone what they should have done. When they did that, they had to offer sacrifices for their own sin because it would have been required. But yet, verse 27 says this, "...who needeth not daily..." as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Two great points are made. First, Jesus didn't have any sins, so he didn't need to offer for his own sins. He had none. But you'll notice those priests had to continually offer. But Jesus offered one sacrifice for sin, forever. He didn't have to go back and offer every year or every month or every week. He offered one sacrifice for all time. What a perfect sacrifice and what a powerful point. All of that brings us then to say, we have spent two lessons looking somewhat at Melchizedek and observing comparison to Jesus. That slide summarizes simply by virtue of words the points that we've made, all ten of them. As we've looked at them, we've been impressed how that Melchizedek enters the biblical picture so swiftly, but then leaves it just as quickly as he entered. 
And if we only were left with Genesis 14, there would never have been any idea of what significance would have been utilized by the Holy Spirit connected to Him. But over a thousand years later, God swore on the basis of Melchizedek the character of what one would one day be likened to Him. And then the Hebrew writer develops in three majestic chapters, three pulsating chapters, the nature that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I hope this study has been a reminder to us of the intricacies of the Word of God and the golden nuggets of truth that often are found therein. It could be that as we analyze ourselves, maybe we find that we need to make some changes. If you have been a faithful Christian, but as of tonight you're not, don't you realize that the great high priest is beckoning for you He wants you to be a faithful person serving beneath His reign in that position. But if you haven't submitted to Him and are not submitted to Him, then it's time to do that. For you see, He wants to offer His blood for you, but you've got to want Him to do it. Tonight, if we could be of some help in that way, you need to exhibit faith in Christ as you make a pronouncement in the way of confession. And so as you repent and confess the required matters, we will gladly assist you in baptism. But if you are a wayward child of God, come back to your first love, won't you? We'd be delighted to assist and to help. And we invite you to do that at once while together we stand and sing.